Welcome to The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. In the early 90s, the most famous graffiti artist in our neighborhood was Echo. In contrast to a lot of the older, elder graph writers we admired, Echo was laid back and approachable. In my memory, he is a sort of laconic, Snoop Dogg-like character. It occurs to me now that he was probably constantly baked. Whenever word spread of a new Echo piece on an overpass, my friends and I would make a trek to see it as though it were a new Picasso exhibit at the Guggenheim. Echo lived only a block away in a run-down-looking apartment building, and pop-ins from idolizing eyes were always tolerated, or at least not discouraged. I never could be sure if Echo lived alone or with his parents, as we never saw any adults around. The small room where he constantly drew and painted smelled heavily of design markers and Rust-Oleum spray paint, and wafting from Echo's jam box were the foreign sounds of electronic music. Everyone I knew at the time listened either to rap or rock. All I knew of techno was that it was something traded covertly on tapes by those in the know, and my friends and I were not in the know. One day, Echo was outlining a new Wildstyle piece in his sketchbook as I hovered nearby. Noting the soft, strange, and hypnotic music emanating from the small jambox speakers, I asked Echo what we were listening to. Oh, just some techno shit, he said, not looking up from his pad. Boldly, I asked if I could borrow it. Just take it when you leave, said Echo. I've heard it a hundred times. The paint splatter cassette I took home that day was 808 States United State 90. I still have this exact copy, with the spray paint on it, and if I can locate it, I'll post a photo of it on my Patreon page. Now, learning about electronic music felt like discovering hip-hop all over again. Though finding information about such a constantly evolving niche genre was at the time far more difficult than it is today, in the era of documentaries and coffee table books and gallery exhibits. I soon set my mind to piecing together whatever clues I could. As with hip-hop, techno had its hierarchies, pioneers, and godfathers. The Belleville Three was Juan Atkins, the initiator, Derek May, the innovator, and Kevin Saunderson, the elevator. These guys were like the Cool Herc, Africa Bambata, and Grandmaster Flash of Detroit techno. There were other important figures like Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy, second waivers like Carl Craig and Jeff Mills, and important labels like Transmat, KMS, Underground Resistance, and Planet E. Detroit was the birthplace of techno, I learned, while Chicago was the birthplace of house. Scooter found a flyer advertising an upcoming rave on Staten Island, and so we decided to assemble a group for a reconnaissance mission to this new, alien universe. It's hard for me to put my finger on what it was about electronic music that initially appealed to me. Perhaps it was its relative exoticism, and the fact that, unlike hip-hop, metal, or even jazz, I could not get my head around how it was being created. I immediately loved the metronomic pulse of techno and house, the reliability of the palette of kick drums and snares. Later, I would admire some of the creative drum programming of late 90s techno subgenres, but these never quite moved me like Chicago House's steady 4-4 throb, piano stabs, and soft pad chords, or the way the ubiquitous 130 BPM kick and snare sounds of early Detroit techno struck with exactly the same featureless amplitude each time, creating a canvas for limited possibilities of highly detailed and granularly sculpted sounds to float on top. There's something magical about the range of feelings and emotions so-called dance music can evoke using relatively limited tools. For example, 
Despite tempos that hover around 140 beats per minute, listen to Rolando Simmons's dim and note the aching melancholy poking below the surface of the acid squiggles of the Roland TB303 synthesizer. In some ways, and this has been addressed by many critics, this is not an original idea, of course, the roots of this sound can be traced to the existential machine music of Kraftwerk circa computer world, perhaps the first pop music to possess characteristics that were both anthropic and robotic. Electronic music, and this is an umbrella term under which I will reluctantly and reductively include everything from GABA to trance, would soon become and remain the only music I listen to with the ears of a non-musician. You see, because its construction has been a mystery to me since my first encounter with the music of 808 State over a quarter century ago, electronic music still allows me to exercise my imagination when I listen to it. Now, as a child, this is the way I listened to all music, before I learned to play an instrument or ever set foot in a recording studio. I heard in music not plate reverb and moogs and rickenbackers, but ray guns and insects and monsters, oceans rising up, things tumbling down flights of stairs. Now, formerly, jazz had occupied this imaginational space for me. Now, though I enjoyed jazz long before I possessed even the faintest understanding of its mechanics, I've since spent a lot of dedicated listening time trying to unravel what occurs within a given jazz piece, noting the consistency of chord changes underneath even the wildest solos, you know, counting the number of bars, identifying the trading of fours. As a result, at some point in my education, my experience of listening to jazz necessarily changed. An example is like hearing Thelonious Monk music used to remind me, superficially, of the New York winters of my youth. Jazz in general, thanks in large part to public television and Gangstar and Tribe Called Quest samples, gave me fuzzy, vicarious, secondhand feelings of nostalgia for places I have never been and situations that have never occurred. Nowadays, when I listen to Monk, who is one of my all-time favorite artists, I think I own everything he ever recorded, I might wonder why his saxophonist Charlie Rouse made a certain decision, or I'm following with my ears the serpentine bass lines of Oscar Pettiford or Larry Gales. I think a lot of musicians are afflicted with this particular problem. At a certain point, we stop hearing music and begin hearing musicians. We begin hearing not sounds, but choices and decisions. Rarely does a new piece of music allow me to drift off and imagine places I've been, or lament about old girlfriends or deceased pets or whatever. More likely, my thoughts are, ah, there's the old dadgad tuning, or why the hell did they compress the snare that way? Even worse, what I often hear nowadays are the combined influences of five older, better artists. I call this participant syndrome. Most music I hear makes me aware of the act of creating music. Techno and house, however, are for me an aberration. They force me to think about other abstract things. They allow me to think about my life. It definitely helps that this is a form of music we're talking about that subverts music business schema by mostly operating outside received raucous narratives. Most electronic artists have many aliases and pseudonyms, and the subculture is largely, though not exclusively, singles-based. Discussions among fans rarely center around albums or the personalities that invent them, but labels and individual tracks. The particular membership of the duo Drexia, one of the great electronic acts of all time, wasn't even made public until one of its members, James Stinson, died in 2002. The auteur theory of creation is largely inapplicable here. In techno, there are no Christian periods, heroin phases, or divorce albums. There's no memorabilia, and little idolatry. 
Very few people would ask a DJ for an autograph. I wonder how many people are going to write me now and tell me they asked the DJ for an autograph. Compact label founder, producer, and impresario Wolfgang Voigt, who's a legend, put it best in a 2013 video interview with Z Sessions. Techno is an international, very democratic, nonverbal musical language without any borders, Voigt said. Nobody cares where you're from, how you look, who you are. Not everybody has to be Madonna to be popular. Electronic music is also a branch of music fandom in which I am totally comfortable being a tourist. I have no compunction about going into a store that specializes in house or techno and inquiring, as if I were buying a bottle of wine or a cigar, Lately I've been into this, this, and this. What else you got? I don't typically frequent dance clubs. More on that in a second. And if I did, I would be annoying. They have yet to invent a drug potent enough for me to resist the urge to ask the DJ the name of the song she just played, or to pull out my phone to Shazam a track so I could find it later and learn everything there is to know about it. The point of attending a dance party is, to paraphrase a George Strait song, to roll with the flow, and my ingrained and compulsory music nerd behavior and habits would only compromise this experience. Though I eventually learned just enough about electronic music to write for several electronica magazines in the late 90s and early aughts, I think I can hold my own in most conversations about various artists, labels, and scenes. I remain an eternal electronica newbie, and that's how I like it. This is not to say I haven't had to occasionally ignore my obsessive instincts, like the time I planned to have a fax number permanently branded on my body to pair with my What Would Neil Young Do tattoo and obligatory black flag bars. This fax number was a tribute to the ambient techno label I really liked and still really like. Plus 4969-450464 remains the most iconic fax number in electronic music, associated as it is with the logo of late German electronic label Fax, which was founded by the late Pete Nam Luke. I probably would have gone through with getting this tattoo had an astute friend not pointed out that it would likely be mistaken by approximately 99.9% of the world for that of an Auschwitz survivor, and thus very disrespectful. Thanks, John. So, back to this time I raved till dawn. I can't say attending the rave with Scooter and a few of our other friends was a life-altering event. Too self-conscious to dance or mingle, I felt, despite the rave's welcoming atmosphere, a little bit like a spy. Also, attending with a group of skeptical, equally dance-averse dudes, mostly there for the drugs, was probably not a great way to truly experience such an event. I'm reminded of the difference between a traveler and a tourist. A traveler submits to the environment by immersing himself in it completely and suspending judgment. A tourist gawks and takes pictures. Our little posse took the requisite ecstasy and spent the entire evening in a chemical daze, walking back and forth across the vast, cavernous warehouse, people watching and feeling the music. The thing I remember most was the rave's easy pluralism. In many ways, this party was a utopian, egalitarian ideal of what a music-based community could be. It almost looked as if, in advance of the party, someone had called a temporary ceasefire between all the various rival teenage breeds. Gold-chained Donning Guidos swayed merrily alongside dudes in Megadeth t-shirts. Beautiful girls swinging neon plastic ropes gyrated beside disheveled, overweight, and unfashionable-looking boys in backwards baseball caps and giant pants. It remains the most diverse group of people I have ever witnessed assembled at a single musical event. My group mostly remained clustered together, not sure what to do with ourselves, but enjoying the euphoric motion of walking and observing, with the deep bass lines pleasantly vibrating through our chests 
and up and down the soles of our shoes. When we finally exited the warehouse hours later, we were surprised to find it was already full light. Time had passed quickly and imperceptibly, and the morning sky looked gigantic and unusually beautiful. Though I vowed at the time that I'd soon become a regular attendee of raves, I didn't actually attend another one until many years later, when I was dragged, tired and homesick, to some similarly Dionysian event on tour after a show I played somewhere in Europe. I actually have to work to keep my passion for electronic music casual, believing as I do that my fandom hinges to a large degree on my maintaining a certain distance from the way it's created. Though I'm a loyal fan and a collector of a handful of house and techno labels, I don't feel like I'm missing out if I happen to miss one or two releases, and I don't get hung up on trying to hear everything, as I do with most other music. I listen to techno when I drive and on headphones before I go to sleep, but mostly I reach for it when I want to listen to music without necessarily thinking about the way music is made. That said, if someone wants to take me to Ibiza sometime to listen to a Balearic DJ soundtrack The Setting Sun, I can definitely make some room in my schedule. After the rave, I found I was increasingly interested in techno and other kinds of music I had yet to really explore. I was beginning to feel bored and a bit constrained by hip-hop, as the music began to pivot to more mainstream sounds. I loved Biggie as an MC, but the maximalist pop production of his partner and foil, Sean Puffy Combs, seemed to portend a grim new era. For years, I listened to groups like EPMD and A Tribe Called Quest speak out in their songs against Crossing Over, clowning on those rappers transparently trying to appeal to pop radio. And now it was becoming common for every new hip-hop single to feature an R&B singer on the hook. In addition to this, there were more and more white kids rapping, and none of them were as good as me and Paul. When a former Guido-turned-rapper I knew, desperate for our approval of his raps, used the N-word in his verse, the word sounded less like a typical battle rap boast than what it actually was, the sound of a spoiled white kid from the suburbs, using an epithet to denigrate a black person. It was the first time I began to second-guess my role in this rap thing, to feel suddenly aware of the role-playing aspect of what we were doing. Now, Paul, a true believer, had no such hang-ups and spent a great deal of time trying to expose me to the good underground hip-hop that he claimed was beginning to thrive. But for me, the ship had mostly sailed. This was also around the time I started really listening for the first time to the Isley Brothers and Parliament Funkadelic, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Curtis Mayfield, and the deeper cuts of James Brown. And I began to recognize the tremendous, and in some cases scandalous, debt hip-hop owed to these artists. In truth, hearing these original tracks further diminished to some degree my love of hip-hop, because this thrilling and fucking awesome older music forced me to recognize that a lot of my favorite aspects of rap music were the sounds that were sampled or otherwise repurposed for beats and hooks. Freddie Hubbard and Ramsey Lewis records sounded like gangstar samples stretched out over the length of an LP side. NWA, it turned out, had been for years lifting entire choruses from Bootsy Collins. I was even disappointed to learn that my favorite De La Soul track, Millie Pulled a Pistol on Santa, was built from little more than a sample of funkadelic, stony, and magnificent I'll Stay. I began gravitating more and more to these primary sources, and I began to vastly prefer them to the modern hip-hop tracks that mined them for source material. By now I was listening to some late-night pirate radio shows that played techno and house, and trying to make connections between the artists I was hearing. I'd also gradually gotten back into punk, and what was now being called alternative rock. I would watch MTV's video show 120 Minutes, and return to my old practice of writing down the names of bands I felt I needed to investigate further. 
Annie was one of the pack leaders of the hip and stylish punk scene at my high school. Annie was arch, witty, and wise, with a personality that was more jaded, acid-tongued theater critic than punk rock true believer. For whatever reason, Annie decided she liked me, and soon we began dating and spending most of our time together. Annie was formerly a rude girl, which for those who don't know is a female associated with the ska scene, but had recently outgrown the sounds of the specials and madness, and had converted to a mod. By day she wore the customary Fred Perry shirts and Doc Martin boots, but by night Annie donned her old retired uniform of checkered pants and twin-tone t-shirts as pajamas, which I found very cute. Though Annie was a year my senior and had plans to attend NYU the following year, we vowed, as naive young couples do, to remain together after she left for college. Meanwhile, small, independent DIY rock clubs were beginning to thrive all over Staten Island. Annie and I would regularly go to new venues like The Wave, The Rock Palace, or The Joint to hear both local and touring punk, hardcore, and emo bands. Though Annie cynically critiqued and ridiculed the various crusties, straight-edgers, vegans, riot girls, pop-punkers, and Hare Krishnas that made up the punk scene, I to varying degrees found most of these archetypes rather compelling, and the more I explored the music, the more curious I grew about its various associated ideologies. A meat and dairy-free diet made a lot of sense to me for both ethical and health reasons, and I soon went vegan, much to Annie's chagrin. I even read the Bhagavad Gita, which I was inspired to do after getting into the Krishna Consciousness Band's shelter. I'm not sure I ever considered becoming a devotee, but I was definitely curious. You see, shelter had a particular appeal, because after years of gangster rap, satanic black metal, and stuff like that, not to mention the customary vegan straight-edge anarchist slants of hardcore, the Krishna stuff was like a new frontier of experience, something occult, taboo, maybe even shocking. I didn't ever feel the need to hide Ice Cube or Deicide records from my parents, but I remember being careful about leaving Shelter and 108 records around. I didn't want them to think I was a candidate for deprogramming. And one last thing about Shelter. I feel like their lyrics, though in some ways philosophically dubious, help to expand the often narrow range of expression in punk, just as Born Against and Fugazi had done before them. A lot of people clown on Shelter. They did then and they do now. But their song In Defense of Reality made a more compelling case for the belief in God than anything I had ever heard in church at that time. Anyway, enough about Shelter. I started corresponding with bands and labels I read about in the pages of fanzines, and sent money orders and well-concealed cash for mysterious 7 inches and LPs. I learned how to reuse stamps. As something of a scenester with far more credibility than me, Annie was personal friends with nearly every band in town, and with many of the touring ones as well. While in the company of these bands, Annie could be tantalizingly flirtatious. Now, while I vowed to not let this bother me too much, I mean, to be possessive and jealous was uncool and very unpunk, a particular recurring incident enraged me. Annie had a seemingly innocent, if not very secret, crush on the bassist of a local band called Slip House. The bassist reciprocated Annie's admiration and hit upon a subtle and admittedly ingenious way of pitching woo. During Slip House's line check before any performance, said bassist would unfailingly play the opening riff of In the City by The Jam, which was one of Annie's very favorite songs. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. This mating call would be the signal that would cause Annie to grin and swoon and run into the club to listen to the band. I still hate that song. By now, I was skipping school almost every day. 
because my parents were usually home until 9 a.m., I was forced to indulge in the charade of actually leaving the house as if to go to school. Every weekday morning I would take the city bus to Tottenville and attend English class, which I'd made a point to schedule for first period because it was the only class I enjoyed. After first period, it was time to leave. See, at Tottenville, it was never a matter of if you could escape, only when and from which door. Occasionally, a security guard would half-heartedly give chase, but very few truants were ever apprehended. A school-issued bus pass was a wonderful and miraculous thing, a visa by which you could ride the city buses anywhere throughout New York for free, all day, without limit. Now, Occasionally, I was able to convince the more studious Annie or Paul to join me in cutting class, but more often than not, I ended up skipping school alone, which was fine. Sometimes I'd simply just return home. By 9 a.m., my parents had left for work, so I would take the bus back to my house, hop the backyard fence, and let myself in through the back door, where I would spend the remainder of the day indulgingly watching Matlock and Northern Exposure, and eating Elio's frozen pizza. New albums were released every Tuesday, and so on that day, my weekly ritual was to take the bus to The Wiz, buy a new album or two, and then spend the rest of the day riding the bus from one end of Staten Island to the other, listening repeatedly to the new albums on my Walkman. The Meat Puppets' Too High to Die, Holes Live Through This, and Beck's Mellow Gold, to name just three, are albums that are inextricably linked to these glorious, solitary days. I never made a decision to quit school. The idea of dropping out seemed at some point so inevitable that it never occurred to me to make some big pronouncement about it. I merely began attending fewer and fewer classes until I finally just quit going altogether. My parents, by now perhaps resigned to the fact that I was something of a lost cause, who had decided to follow in the footsteps of mercurial Uncle George, were disappointed but not shocked. Well, my dad said upon hearing the news, I guess now you'll never go to college. It was Annie's mother, Cecilia, who convinced me to get my general equivalency diploma. You're a smart guy, James, she said. You may as well at least give yourself the option of going to college. Now, I liked Annie's mom as much as I liked Annie, and I respected her opinion, so I promised her I'd enroll in the GED prep school and take the test. The GED prep and test center was located on Bay Street on Staten Island's North Shore, walking distance to the ferry, and close to where Paul and I used to rap after school with Justino and the gang. I was delighted to find that there were several rappers in the GED class, and together we spent the breaks from the not especially challenging daily test prep trading rhymes in the building's vestibule. I blazed through the relatively simple material and ultimately went on to receive the second highest test score in the class. I really need to remember to add that to my CV. Across the street from the GED school was Staten Island's only Taco Bell franchise. There were plans afoot to open a second store on the South Shore, closer to where I lived, and the North Shore Taco Bell was hiring new employees to be trained at the current location to be eventually relocated to the new store in time for its grand opening, fully trained and, it was assumed, fully prepared. I was tired of not having any pocket money, so I filled out an application and I was hired on the spot. My routine at this time was easy enough. Every weekday morning I would wake up at Annie's house, ride the bus to attend GED school, cross the street to work the afternoon shift at Taco Bell, and then ride the bus, my stomach full of free burritos, back to Annie's house, where I'd spend the night. While training at Taco Bell, I occasionally got to serve food to members of Wu-Tang Clan, who had recently opened their clothing shop, Wu-Wear, a few blocks away. A very friendly and magnetic method man was a regular, 
Now, this might appear to have been a period of low stakes and even lower expectations, but it felt transitional. Annie's mom had definitely put a bug in my ear about college, and I felt myself warming to the idea. When the inevitable transfer of newly trained employees to the brand new Taco Bell location finally occurred, we were ill-prepared to say the least. The new store on the South Shore attracted a lot of curious customers, most of whom had never eaten at Taco Bell, and they formed lines around the block. The service we provided at this new and highly anticipated restaurant was poor enough to inspire a scathing op-ed in the local paper, which prompted certain Taco Bell higher-ups to come and investigate the situation. Okay, so the sour cream and guacamole at Taco Bell are dispensed via trigger from a kind of tube-shaped plastic spray gun. At least they were then, I don't know now. To break the monotony of our shifts, the Taco Bell employees would regularly engage in condiment fights, using these dispensers as pistols. A shared stainless steel cabinet, where the soft burrito and taco shells were warmed, separated the two opposing food prep lines. There was no partition inside the cabinet separating the two adjacent stations, and so opening the cabinet's door to retrieve a shell provided you with a perfect 12 by 12 inch window to the neighboring food prep line. It was through this window that employees would tag their unsuspecting co-workers with a stream of gloop from one of the condiment guns, paintball style, at which point the victim of the attack would return fire, occasionally also hurling cheese, lettuce, or pico sauce through the window in retaliation. This was just as fun as it sounds. Super, super fun. On the afternoon the Taco Bell district manager finally arrived, he walked in to find all the employees covered in various food stuff, and the queue of impatient customers growing increasingly irate and even hostile. I had sour cream in my hair. The stunned district manager briefly surveyed the scene before him, his mouth agape, his eyes darting and wild. Then, regaining his composure, he spoke at last. You, 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 and you, he said, pointing a finger at each employee individually, including the manager on duty. Out. You're all fired. Fired from Taco Bell. Clearly, I was destined for greatness. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes. And please tell your friends. You can always find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth or on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Now, there are only three episodes left in the first season. So if you join this party a little late, you got the holidays to catch up. Maybe binge listen. For the rest of you, please stay tuned. See you next time. This is The Toth Zone.